One of my memories from growing up is uh, having people come over to visit. This, these memories are from about middle school years, and uh, just remembering how stressed things would be around the house as my family, we had four kids, I was the youngest of four, would get ready for company to come over. Um, I don't know if you've had that experience, or if you had that experience growing up. I remember it. And uh, I know that um, if you were to say, if you've got an office, perhaps you do here in Boston, and you knew that your boss or your boss's boss was coming to visit you in your office on Wednesday this week, my guess is that you'd spend Tuesday getting ready uh, for his or her visit to your office, kind of cleaning up. I confess I did this when Bishop Steve came to town a couple of months ago. My office is not known for being clean uh, and can be quite cluttered at times. And so I picked up, because he's my boss, I picked it up so that it'd be you know, more presentable when, uh, when he showed up. In many ways, what we're going to talk about tonight is about getting ready for an important guest. Um, the great hope of the Christian church and the hope that we proclaim during this Advent season is that Jesus is coming back and that when he comes back, he's going to set everything right, uh, rid us of death, evil, and pain, um, deal with every injustice, and usher in the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation of God, which will be wonderful, joyous, and amazing, far, more, far greater than anything that we can imagine. And yet, obviously, Jesus is coming back himself to do this great renewing work. And that raises the question of, are you and I ready for him to come back? Are we ready to face him? Are we ready to see him? Are we ready to welcome him? Are things in order, like my family did growing up, like my family still does today? If you're coming over to our house, we're getting ready for you. Are things in order? And are you ready? That's the question that we want to think about together tonight. And what I want to do from Matthew 24, um, this text where Jesus is speaking about um, significant future-altering events, including his coming again, and where he exhorts us, exhorts his hearers, to stay awake and to be ready. We want to think about this in three ways. First, what does it mean to stay awake? Uh, Second, why does Jesus exhort us to stay awake? Why does he need to? And then thirdly, how might we stay awake? Or how might we know if we're staying awake or not? My main theme is I want you to be awake and ready as Jesus returns and when he returns. So what does it mean to stay awake? Well, Jesus tells this parable at the end of this reading. And here's how the parable goes. Verse 45, Matthew 24. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and began to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he does, that he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the, hip, with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So that's the parable that Jesus tells. And that parable features two servants. One is the good and faithful servant, the wise and faithful servant. The other is the wicked servant. And the wise and faithful servant um, and the, the wicked servant are both in the story, have been set over the master's household. They've been entrusted with a stewardship called to d- distribute the master's abundance and resources to those under his care for their benefit and good. And that's what the faithful, faithful and wise servant is doing when the master returns. He's taking care of what God or what the the master has entrusted to him. On the other hand, the wicked servant, um, because of the master's apparent delay, he hadn't come back when he thought he would, and he thinks, you know, maybe he's not coming back. The wicked servant does what he wants to do. 
He uh, beats his fellow servants, maybe just feeling good about being an authority over them. And he injures them, obviously, instead of providing for their good out of the master's resources. And he drinks and eats with drunkards. He gorges himself, indulges his own fleshly appetites. And then upon the master's unexpected or unsuspected return, he is harshly judged and excluded from his master's household. While the faithful and wise servant, on the other hand, is praised and promoted to a position of greater significance within his master's household or domain. So that's the parable. What does it mean to stay awake from that parable? What does it mean to be ready? It means to be doing the master's will. To be doing the master's will. That's it. Do you want to be ready when Jesus returns? When this great hope that we have begins to unfold? Well, then Jesus' exhortation to you and to me is to be doing our Father's business, to be fulfilling the stewardship that God has entrusted to us, which is unique and different for each one of us, depending on our gifts and place and station in life, but it's to be exercising stewardship over what God has entrusted to us in accordance with his will. If you look a little bit more closely, look at the two things that the wicked and oh, that the wicked servant is up to, um, which get him off track from his master's will. The first thing is, instead of using uh, his master's resources to benefit others, um, the wicked servant does the opposite. He uses his position to injure others, to beat others down. So he should have been using them to bless others, which is, in, a, in many ways, the definition of love. Love is seeking the good of another often at great cost to oneself. That's what love is. It's not any more complicated than that. It's looking around the people in this room or the people in your office tomorrow and saying, what can I do to bring blessing, to pursue the good of that person? And doing it, whatever the cost is. That's what love is. Paul says in Romans 13, which we read from uh, earlier this, um, today, he says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Well, did the wicked servant do wrong to his neighbor? Absolutely he did, by beating his neighbor. Uh, but Paul says love does no wrong, and because love is about pursuing the good of the other with what's been entrusted to us, then Paul says love is a fulfilling of the law. That is, to stay awake means doing our master's will. Well, what is our master's will? It is the law. Well, what is the law? It's summed up by this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. So do you want to be found ready when Jesus returns? Love your neighbor. That's what this wicked servant didn't do. The second thing that the wicked servant does is he indulges his appetites. This is a little bit trickier in our cultural context. We have at our fingertips more food and drink and sex and bodily pleasure than any human beings have ever had, at least as a possibility, in the history of humanity. We live in a culture and in a day when we are told to um, to pander to, gratify, and indulge our fleshly appetites. And that's what the wicked servant does. Why is this problematic? It says he eats and he drinks with drunkards. He's indulging himself in excess. It's problematic because to indulge our desires, our fleshly desires in this way, is inherently self-centered and self-seeking. And it's doing these things in a way that harms others under the guise of pleasing ourselves. Uh, at least that's, that's often the case in the more relational aspects of this kind of indulgence. Going back to Romans 13 for a moment, Paul says some challenging words. He says, um, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ 
and to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. He also says to abstain from uh, engaging in orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, and sensuality. Those are things of indulgence, excessive, limitless satisfying of bodily desire, fleshly desire. And Paul says, don't let that overtake you. Put on the Lord Jesus instead. It's the opposite of love. It's a selfish orientation. It's constantly feeding the desires that I have. And in so doing, it's failing to see the needs of my neighbor. So it's no surprise that both in Matthew 24, in Jesus's words, and in Romans 13, which are both exhorting us to be ready, to be people of the light, that these two things come up in this way. If you want to stay awake, do the master's will. What is the master's will? It's to love your neighbor as yourself. How do you do that? You use what God has entrusted to you for the good of your neighbor, and you curb fleshly desire. That's not anti-enjoyment of creation, but it's enjoying the creation of God within limits, the limits that God has set up, and choosing a path, as Paul says, of making no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, not letting that become our idol, uh, our pursuit, which it can easily do, and it can do that in ways that are all, uh, that are totally culturally acceptable, right? So that gives us some things to think about during this Advent season. So why does Jesus exhort us to stay awake? If that's what it means to stay awake, why does he exhort us to do that? And there, there's an implicit reason and there's an explicit reason. The implicit reason is that the default natural trajectory of things is to fall asleep. Even in situations where we have all the incentive in the world not to fall asleep, like when we're driving, we still fall asleep. Uh, that's how strong the pull to sleep actually is. Not to fall asleep requires vigilance. It requires acts of resistance, of striving, of effort, and of fight. Uh, at least for me, I'm terrible at driving at night, not very good at it, never been a strength of mine. So all these crazy ways that I have to work hard to not fall asleep behind the wheel, loading up on caffeine, which I don't drink much of or have much of anyway, hitting myself in the face, using my hands to keep my eyelids up. Uh, you're loving being on the road next to me right now, aren't you? Shouting, singing really loud, rolling down the window and sticking my head out of the window. Who's done that one? Okay, good. I'm not alone. Uh, it takes effort to stay awake. And Jesus knows that the default is to fall asleep. Now, obviously, we're speaking in a kind of metaphorical way about physical sleep, but Jesus says the same thing about your spiritual being, your, your, your state of mind. What, what, what does this mean? It's because if, if doing your master's will is loving your neighbor, that is a fundamentally God-oriented and others-oriented way to live. But falling asleep in this sense is reverting back to the ever-present, always, always beckoning self-will and not the Father's will. And Jesus knows that we'll kind of gravitate back to this by default. It's the way the world operates. It's the way that the current is flowing in the world in which we live. And it's naturally the way that we will move if we're not vigilant and doing all kinds of interesting things practicing disciplines to stay awake. Jesus knows that we're prone to getting caught up in the cares and worries and anxieties of life that make us selfish. He knows that money and education capture our hearts and become the resting place for our identities. He knows that we can't serve two masters, God and money. He knows we're prone to do the easy and satisfying thing 
that we want to do and not the hard and self-denying thing that the Father calls us to in a life of love. He knows that our passions and desires will at times feel too strong for us. And he knows that we will sometimes find the path of withholding forgiveness and taking revenge to be the only option that we can see in a given situation with someone. He knows that we're prone to anger and that that can take hold in our hearts and soon enable us to justify all sorts of actions. And he knows that we are afraid and that when we are afraid, we are prone to latch on to the first comfort that we can find, which is often something very unholy and unhealthy. He knows that the spirit, in short, is willing, but that the flesh is weak. So he exhorts us to stay awake. Stay awake. The explicit reason that Jesus gives for staying awake or for being ready is because we don't know when the master's coming back. This is our great hope, and it's a wonderful hope. But we don't know when he's coming. And so Jesus' exhortation is, you know, I don't want you to fall asleep and not be found ready for his return. Why, why would that be the case? Well, I mean, for one, it's, it's kind of bad to be caught sleeping when you shouldn't be asleep. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. It hasn't really, I don't think it's happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to me, actually. But, you know, you don't want to be caught sleeping, you know, when your boss shows up on Wednesday in the office. Probably not a good thing. So it's incredibly embarrassing to fall asleep when you've been entrusted with a stewardship. But it goes beyond embarrassment, doesn't it? These are challenging words, obviously, in Matthew 24, and their parallels in the other Gospels. Uh, Jesus seems to imply that falling asleep, in this case, says something about our hearts, that they're not fully with the Master. They're given over to other things, whether because of weakness or because of outright rebellion. Our falling asleep reveals a lack of love, of allegiance, of faithfulness to our Master. And these we know from elsewhere where Jesus tells similar stories, and also from this story here in Matthew 24. These lead to punishment, to rebuke, and even to harsh judgment upon the Master's return. And that's a situation that Jesus wants us to avoid, so he exhorts us, stay awake. That's the explicit reason. You don't know. He says in verse 44, the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. So be alert, be vigilant, be ready, be awake. So are you awake right now in your life? Or should Advent be a big alarm clock for you spiritually, reverberating and waking you up again to the fact that, yes, this is our great hope, but with that great hope comes the reality that Jesus will see you and and you will stand before him unable to hide. And he longs for us to be ready. So third and finally, how do we stay awake? And I want to just point two things out that are signs of falling asleep. The first one is the absence of conflict or struggle. This may be a little surprising. But if we're to stay awake in a sleepy world, um, if we're to move down the path of love in a self-centered world, then we will surely feel and experience the reality of that conflict in our lives. The challenge of swimming upstream, it's impossible for it not to be noticed. In other words, if we're not feeling at odds at all, as misfits in some way in our world, 
then it's quite likely that we're falling asleep. Think about James says it. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Or Jesus, in another of his challenging statements, says, Enter by the narrow gate in Matthew 7, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. It's a hard way that leads to life, but it is life. Staying awake requires then substantial effort and struggle against the natural flow of things in our world, which is why the Christian life is described as a battle or a fight for a good reason. We have an enemy, Peter tells us, that prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You might, in this context, think that prowls around like a roaring lion looking to lull someone to sleep. And then the next words that Peter says are, resist him. Resistance. Struggle. Digging in. So the question is on this first one, do you feel the conflict? Now, don't hear me prescribing exactly one thing around this. But do you experience conflict and challenge in your life as you're following Jesus? As you wrestle with your own patterns and habits of life? As you wrestle with injustices? As you wrestle with doubts, perhaps, and just a lack of understanding? The conflict and the struggle could be reflected in the kind of lament and protest before God that we see all over the place in the Psalms. That's a sign of life, and it's a sign of movement. Israel is defined as one who wrestles with God. That's the nature of God's people. We wrestle. Are you wrestling? If you're wrestling, I don't mean to to say that, that to be awake, that means that you need to feel like a victorious, on top of the world, uh, you know, Christian man or woman. In fact, I'm not sure what that would look like. But it means that there's a, a vibrancy, that there's a struggle, that there's a, an anguish, that there's a movement, of course, layered with peace and joy and love and hope. But I hope you're tracking with me there. Some kind of wrestling that's going on. And then the second thing is the, um, the, the second sign of falling asleep. And this can relate to the first, is the absence of self-denial. We saw that the excessive gratification of fleshly desire is a sign of being asleep. That was the case for the wicked servant, and Paul certainly seems to indicate in Romans 13 that that's the case for all, of not being ready. It's no surprise that this is here, because the the road of obedience, Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. So the question is, does your life with Jesus infringe upon your sleep or your wallet or our relationships or our appetites by leading us at times to forgo something that we naturally desire or want in order that we might follow him more faithfully? I mean, a very small scale of this is, you know, perhaps there's a time when you just want to like sit down and completely veg out on the couch, but instead you choose not to do what your desire is in that moment in a fleshly sense, but just to go spend some time quietly in the awkwardness and the difficulty and the wrestling of prayer. Is that a choice? 
not saying you make that choice. Sometimes it's the right thing to do to lay on the couch and just veg out. Don't hear me, don't misunderstand me. But do you ever make that kind of choice where you are choosing a different path? My point is that if we're not, if we're not telling ourselves no, and believe, I mean, in America right now, you can tell yourself yes all day long. But if we're not telling ourselves no at routine points in our Christian life, then we are likely on the path to falling asleep. The world says to embrace and indulge our desires and passions, but the way of Christ is to chasten, deny, and ultimately redirect our desires and passions to the only one who can truly fulfill them, who is God himself. Now, during Advent, we have the opportunity to practice this in some specific and small ways, but I think practicing this kind of denial of oneself in small ways is the right way to practice it. We tend sometimes to think about, you know, the grandiose moment when we, when we might, you know, lay ourselves down in, in front of a train to save somebody, and that's like, no, but it's the small little things. It's the five minutes at a time kind of ways. And during Advent, I would commend to you this practice of self-denial, perhaps by fasting, Skip a meal every week. Skip one lunch each week and just spend that time in prayer, perhaps. Or do that with your triad. Or do that with your neighborhood group together. Experiment with that and process it together. Forgoing some spending and giving generously to others. We'll take up a special offering as we do each Advent in two weeks on December 11th. And think about perhaps withholding something that you wanted so that you can give more generously to that need or that mission. Again, these are small, uh, very incremental acts of self-denial, but they are not insignificant. And I would submit to you that our learning to deny ourselves in small and, and seemingly trivial ways actually is one of the greatest training grounds for learning how to deny ourselves in the bigger and more significant ways of love that we are called to as God's people day by day. So those are two things to point to in terms of how do we stay awake? Well, here are two ways that we can fall asleep. The absence of self-denial in our lives and the absence of struggle. Which means if you're struggling tonight, be encouraged. Be encouraged that that's a sign of life. That's a sign of being awake in a movement toward the life of God. I, don't ho- I hope that I haven't discouraged you by dealing with this text on the opening Sunday of Advent and by wanting to heed this call of Jesus to stay awake. I would shift the difficulty of this um, back to Jesus himself who speaks these words to his hearers in Matthew 24. But I want to encourage you as you evaluate your own life, perhaps, as you think about where am I, you take stock which a season, a penitential season like Advent encourages us to do, that there is tremendous grace in God's person for you. God is not wanting to to come back and surprise you. God is urging you to receive the life that he wants to give you and to come into the fullness of that life more and more and more. It just so happens that that fullness of life is exactly what it means to stay awake. Living a life of love today and tomorrow and the rest of this week is the way of life. Over and against the life of self-centeredness, which is actually not the way of life it promises to be, but actually the way of death, the way of diminishment of our humanity and of our life. 
And God is longing to give you grace and help and mercy in our time of need. He's not stingy. So we pray daily, that prayer that we prayed tonight, the collect for Advent. Give us grace to do what? To cast away the works of darkness and to put on the armor of light. When you pray that during this Advent season, and I do encourage you, as you grab a prayer book tonight, to take that home, to memorize this collect for Advent, to pray it every day. But when you say to cast aside the works of darkness, think about casting aside your self-centeredness. And when you say to put on the armor of light, think about putting on a life of love for your neighbor. That text comes out of Romans 13, which ends with, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, who shows us in an embodied sense what the fully, truly human life is, which is a life of pouring ourselves out even to the point of death. So ask for God's help this Advent season. And finally, if you're wondering about the worthwhile nature of this kind of transition of trying to stay awake, of being a person of, who resists what's going on around us, then you're asking kind of, well, why should I pursue something so hard? Why not just stay on the wide and easy way? Then I want you to consider the joys of what it will be to see Jesus face to face. This is not fiction. This moment is coming in your life and in mine. And to hear Jesus say over you, well done, good and faithful servant. When that day comes, you will not care how much money you made. You will not care what titles you had at work. You will not care how many publications that you put out. And you will not care about how much worldly pleasure you were able to have. But you will be so incredibly thankful for the hours and the time that you have spent honoring Jesus through living a life that's not oriented around you, but that's oriented around him and around your neighbor. And that will be everything for all eternity. So we look forward in Advent to this great hope. Stay awake. I want us to be a people who stay awake. And it's 100% worth it. Every ounce of struggle, every time you wrestle, every small act of putting another person before you is totally worth it. Amen.